Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom, everyone. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado. Today is Tuesday, January 12, 2016, and this is a study on the book of Galatians, and it's entitled uh, Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. Let's open up with a word of prayer, then we'll read some liturgy this evening, and then we'll get started into the study. We shouldn't be before you too long because I don't have too much to cover in tonight's material. We're just going to finish up where we started last week, and then we'll um, just put a bow on this particular chapter study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu, Malkenu, our Father, our King Lord, we're excited about what you're doing in our lives, in our communities, in our families. Um, Lord, we look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we know that without your assistance, we know without um, without your foundation in our life, um, that the things that we strive towards are not really going to matter in the long run. They may matter in the short run, but um, in terms of kingdom perspective, Father, they'll fall quite short. So for that reason, we seek to orient all that we do towards your goals and your plans and your purposes. Uh, in a word, as you've uh, uh, so challenged us in, in the scriptures, we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And all the other things will fall into place if we just get our priorities straight. And so, Father, sometimes we confess that we are too busy to see what's most important in life. Help us to stay focused on you. Help us to keep Yeshua at the forefront. Help us to, to uh, seek uh, time with you on a daily basis, uh, pressing into your words, um, putting scripture within our minds, within our hearts, helping our minds to be renewed according to your ways of thinking. Uh, Father, help us to continually rely on the Holy Spirit to be our guide, to be our helper, to be uh, our reminder of the words of the Master Yeshua. Give us a boldness, a boldness, a holy witness, um, so that we can uh, be ever ready to give the gospel to those around us who don't yet know. Uh, this includes friends, family members, co-workers, those whom we will encounter. Lord, give us an opportunity. Open up doors of opportunities, windows uh, of, um, of uh, influence around us in our circles of influence. Father, help us to remain strong in our commitment to walk in your way, in your ways, and to be lights 
and to be salt in this dark generation. Raise us up as children of the King, as ambassadors for your kingdom. We thank you for this opportunity to study through the book of Galatians. I thank you for, uh, for Paul, uh, for his passion, uh, for his steadfastness, and for the Holy Spirit's superintending the words of the text. Lord, we want to study in order to do, in order to teach. And we want to seek to be pleasing to you. Help us in this endeavor. Uh, be with me tonight as I unfold the words to the students. And uh, I pray that you'll give them a supernatural ability to retain that which is pertinent for them so that they can make a practical application. And uh, humble me as I seek to uh, read the text afresh and uh, to uh, unlock its truths. And I'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming out once again to another study on exegeting Galatians. This is a, uh, really it's a never-ending study in the sense that we're just going to keep going through my commentary until we finish. It's about 122 pages on the internet. You can find my commentary online at www.graftedin.com. That's my home congregation website. Look along the very top and you'll see a menu section uh, where if you click on the podcast, it'll, a little menu drop down. You can mouse down to, um, um, oh, let me take a look here real quick. I, I'm trying to, to describe it for you off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm online, so I may as well just go there. Give me a, a split second here. Let's see. If you go to www.graftedin.com, along the very top, there's a link that says podcasts. Mouse on top of it and scroll down to more teachings. And then from the more teachings uh, podcast page, just scroll down into the page and you'll end up seeing the Galatians commentary notes there. You can click on the PDF and read the entire commentary online or you can just click through each one of the sections. Um, FYI, the uh, Galatians commentary that's parked on the graftedin.com website is primarily structured around the older 2008 um, study that I did when I was still uh, located in Colorado. So that's the older commentary there, or it's the older uh, audio portions. If you are interested in following along with the newer updated uh, commentary that I'm following along for this particular uh, study, then you need to go to www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H, TateSayTorah.com. And from the home page along the very top, click on the link that says Galatians Commentary, scroll down the page, and you'll encounter a link for the written commentary, as well as all of the um, online uh, sections are available by link right there on the page. You can click on any link, and it'll take you straight into that chapter or straight into that particular section. For tonight, we are on week e tw week 12, and um, let's make sure we're on week 12. Uh, yes, we're currently on week 12, and you want to um, pick up the commentary on section number two, Ouch Factor, Why the Male Reproductive Organ, and this is the continuation, and I, I'm pretty sure we'll finish tonight. Um, we'll finish this particular uh, uh uh, uh, study for tonight, and then we'll put a bow on this section, and we'll just keep going for um, 
for the current weeks. Keep, remind yourself that this is a um, a semester study. What it means is we're going to start. Um, essentially, I'm trying to start a new section each week, but it doesn't always work that way. So for that reason, um, I've I've divided the um, teaching into ten weeks on, two weeks off, ten weeks on, two weeks off. So we teach for ten weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we take teach for ten weeks, and we take a break for two weeks. And what I've discovered as an adult is this is an easier way to digest all the material. It gives you an opportunity during the two-week break to stop and go back and to review and to get caught up. Because let's be honest, if you're like me, it's kind of hard uh, to always stay on top of a study that just goes week after week after week after week and to kind of keep retention, to keep along with the teacher, to keep up with the notes. And so I encourage you to go back and to catch the recordings that you miss. You can go to my website at tatesatora.com, and you can always find the audio recordings. Um, if you uh, click on the that same Galatians commentary page that I mentioned earlier, scroll down into the page, you'll see there's a link there. Um, for the details on the uh, Tuesday night studies, the Tuesday nights from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And if you click on that link, it'll give you the information about the live internet study. It'll show you what current week we're um, discussing. It will um, give you the meeting topic. And um, if you scroll to the bottom of that page, there's a link for the live study audio recordings. And there, you can find all the past audio recordings. Each study is about an hour long. And we just follow along through the notes and then just kind of um, expand on whatever the notes are talking about. So, with that, let's jump into some liturgy. I'm going to read our, uh, what I'm calling my circumcision liturgy that we've been practicing for the last few weeks. Ever since we've been kind of dealing with the topic of circumcision for these last two sections. So, I don't think we're going to be needing our circumcision liturgy after tonight. But it's been a fun look into these two particular passages, especially as they relate to our Galatians material. So with that, let's first read Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. I'll read that out of the, um, what version do I have pulled up here? I think this is the ESV, yes. And um, I'll read it in English, and then I'll jump over to the Hebrew and read that for you as well. And then we're going to jump into the New Testament. We'll read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through, let's go through verse 6, and then I'll read the, the uh, Greek of that as well. So let's read um, Genesis 17 first. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Verse 13, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
Now let's go back and read the Hebrew of that. I'll read it a little slower than I usually do. For those of you who are practicing Hebrew, teaching yourself Hebrew, these become what I like to imagine as uh, perhaps audio files that will help you practice your Hebrew. Um, at least that's how I learned my Hebrew. I would read through the text slowly, and then I would find audio files wherever I could find them on the internet, or I actually had a, a native Israeli who helped me um, get my pronunciations correctly, so I would listen to him and just mimic the way he was uh, pronouncing the words until it kind of set inside my brain, and I could kind of um, figure out that that's, what, that's how it should be sounding. So I'll read it a little slower than I normally do, and perhaps you can go back and use these audio files as kind of reference files for your own Hebrew tutorials, okay? Genesis 17, uh, starting in verse 9, reads, Vayomer Elohim el Avraham va'ata et briti tishmor ata v'zarecha acharecha l'doratam. Verse 10, Zot briti asher tishmoru beni uvenechem uven zarecha acharecha himol lachem kol zachar. Verse 11, Un maltem et basar or latchem vahaya loot brit beni uvenechem. Verse 12, Uven shmonat yamim yimol lachem kol zachar vadoratechem yelid bayit umichnat kesef mikol. Bain Nehor Asher Lo Mizaracha Hu. And verse 13 Himol Yimol Yalid Beiteka Miknat Kaspecha Vahaita Beiti Bib Sarachem Livrit Olam. And verse 14 Vo Zahar Asher Lo Yimol Et Basar Orlato Benichata Hanefesh Hahi Mea Meha et Briti Hefar. Okay, that's Genesis 17. And let's jump over to the New Testament, the Brit Chadashah, as many Messianics call it. And let's read uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Remember, we're going to exegete this particular passage when we get to it in the commentary. But for now, let's read this for our liturgy, and we'll hit part of it in tonight's discussion. Uh, verses 1 through 6 out of the ESV, quote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love Let's read those same six verses in the Greek. And this is um, 
I think this is... Oh, which version of the Greek is this? Uh, you know what? I'll find out later. I'm just reading it from an interlinear webpage where I can see the Greek and the, and the uh, English right on top of one another. So let's read that. And again, I'll read it a little slower for those of you who are trying to practice your Greek, okay? Here's uh, Galatians 5. Te eleutheria hemos Christos eleutherosen. Stekete un kai me pollen zugo duleas in a Verse 2. Ide ego polos lego human hati in peratemnistha Christos humas uden ophelase. Verse 3. Marturumai de palen panti anthropo peratemnameno. Hati ophelates estin hollen ton namon poesai. Verse 4. Katergeta apo Christu. Hoitinis in namu decaiuste des garatas exepisate. Verse 5. Hemais gar ponumati ec pistios elpida decaiusunes. Apectecometha. Verse 6. En gar Christo Jesu. Ute pertume ti iscue ute acrobustia. Alla pistis di agapes in ergumene. End. Okay, uh, let's jump into the study. For those of you who are in the live class with me, You'll see I've got the screen parked right in the middle of page 13, where we left off last week, and we're continuing our discussion about circumcision. Let's back up just for a brief moment, get ourselves a running start, and remind ourselves where we're at in this particular part of the commentary and why it's pertinent for the Galatians study. Remember, what I keep reminding the students of is that there is um, a... There is a... Uh, a new body of research into the works of Paul that is beginning to discover afresh that the first century Judaisms of Paul's day functioned with a serious deficiency in their understanding of biblical circumcision and their application of the biblical text. And what I mean is that the first century Jews wielded circumcision kind of like a social status. It became for them a marker, a, demar a mark of demarcation to set them apart from the other people groups of the world. And instead of being a sign of the covenant, which would make it significant in, in the biblical text, instead of being a sign that pointed towards the faith of an individual, the faith in God's divine provision, the um, outward sign of an inward reality, we could say, instead of being that, circumcision functioned more or less as um, a, a sign or a status symbol of one's place in the covenant. And in first century Jewish Israel, the Jewish people believed that circumcision essentially um, secured them a place in the everlasting promises of God. In other words, 
even though we know that as we read through the Bible, there are really two levels to the covenant. There is an earthly level and there is an everlasting level. There is a limited level or limited aspect to God's covenant, and there is a um, an everlasting or never-ending aspect or spiritual aspect to God's covenant. There are two levels, we could say, two degrees or two um, um, important uh, pieces of the covenant that God describes in the Bible. And the Jewish people had unfortunately taken the physical part of the covenant that they gained at birth by being Jewish, and they they kind of misunderstood that to be uh, to implicate or to grant them access to the spiritual side of the covenant. In other words, by virtue of being Jewish, they felt that that granted them salvation. If I could just use church lingo. Um, Jewish people thought in the first century that essentially they were saved because they were Jews. That's kind of what I'm trying to get across. And so the reason circumcision becomes very important for our Galatians study is because <clears throat> when Paul began to pen his letter, he had to sift through the misunderstanding of circumcision in order to present a proper application of circumcision to his readers. Remember, in the, the communities of Galatia that Paul's addressing, the Jewish communities were taking their misunderstanding of circumcision. Remember, they were thinking that Jewish identity saved them, Jewish identity and, and um, uh, membership in Israel were what mattered the most in God's eyes. Not that they're not important, but that, but, and, and we must remind ourselves that um, Jewish identity is not downplayed in Paul's letters. Rather, Paul's simply trying to put it back in its proper perspective. So, the Jewish communities of Paul's day were um, believing that because they were Jewish, that they were going to inherit the kingdom to, that was promised by God. In other words, the Olam Haba, the age to come, the millennium, the promises of God that are spelled out in the Torah. In a word, salvation. And because they were born with this identity, they were born with the status symbol, they were born with the silver spoon in their mouth, then the only way for a non-Jew, in essence a Gentile, to be included in this covenant was for the non-Jew to undergo a conversion and become a Jew as well, a legally recognized Jew by them. And so the leaders of Paul's day had uh, developed a man-made ceremony that we call the, the ceremony of the proselyte. And this particular ceremony allowed for a non-Jew, those from the nations, those who were not born with Jewish heritage, that allowed for someone to come into the people group known as Israel, and particularly to take on a status of Jewish uh, as their legal status, leaving their previous status behind. In other words, they changed their ethnicity and became a Jew. And in this conversion ceremony, then the promises of the Torah that were spelled out to the Jewish people, to the, in their eyes, to the Jewish people only, then the promises were granted to this new member of Israel. Are you following along with me? And so effectively, in the first century, the Torah and the promises spelled out in the Torah were for Jewish people only. Now, Stop and remind yourself as you're studying the Bible, as you're reading through the book of Galatians, that Paul used to believe this. He used to believe that the Torah was for Jews only. He used to believe that the only way to get into Israel was to become a Jew or to be born a Jew. And therefore, he used to believe that um, the works of the law, which was this status symbol that was conferred upon the Jewish people as they 
um, were circumcised when they were younger, or if you were a woman, you were you were, you were simply born into this um, status symbol. You were born with this uh, status symbol. You were born with this um, covenant identification. Um, keep 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 yourselves uh, aware that Paul used to believe this way, but in, but once his eyes were open by the risen Messiah, once he went back into the text and read it again he began to realize that the Torah is not for Jews only. The Torah is for anyone who's a covenant member. And that the way to get into the, the genuine and lasting covenant with God is not through circumcision or by being Jewish. The way to get into the covenant is by believing in Messiah. It's by faith. And so Paul is going to begin to set up a dichotomy, a difference between the works of the law and the, um, the faith in Messiah. And so those two concepts become uh, at odds with one another in Paul's writing. Works of the law on one hand, and faith in Messiah on the other hand. The reason it's important for our Galatians studies in our 21st century communities is because for the last 2,000 years or so, the standard Christian definition of the phrase works of the law reads as if Paul is trying to destroy obedience to the Torah. Traditional Christianity uses the phrase works of the law to define mere obedience to the Torah. And so in their effort to um, understand Paul's dichotomy of works of the law on one hand and faith in Christ on the other hand as means to salvation, the church sees or believes or thinks that Paul is combating merit theology on the one hand against faith in Christ on the other hand. And in their conclusion, because no one can be saved by keeping the law, it stands to reason in the church's view of their uh, reading of Galatians, it stands to reason that because no one can be saved by keeping the law, therefore, keeping the law is not worth anything, really. It's, it's, it's not useful in today's Christian communities. And therefore, we end up with a theology or a policy in standard Christian churches that takes essentially the Torah and sets it off to the side. And what I have found is that this is a quite the unfortunate view of Galatians. It's quite the unfortunate interpretation of Paul's writings. It's most unfortunate for Jewish people. How so? Because for Jewish people who are raised in a Torah community where the things such as Sabbath keeping, festival keeping, kosher keeping, um, seat seat wearing, circumcision, all of these things that are that find their root in the law in the law of Moses, in the Torah of Moshe, they become um, they become jettisoned by the church. They become ineffectual in the church community. And in doing so, essentially it strips the Jewish person of his Jewish lifestyle. It strips him of his heritage. It leaves him in a place where he is forced to accept and take on what I describe as basically Gentile Christianity. In other words, he's taught that he's no longer to be to resemble a Jew. In other words, if you were to look at the Jewish people and see what Jewish people do, whether you're a Jew or whether you're not a Jew, you can you can just conduct this little experiment for yourself. You look at the Jewish people, you see them, they keep Torah. Meaning, if you... Um, Find out, ask what day they worship on, it's Saturday. If you find out what festivals they keep, it's the ones that are spelled out in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, if you ask him what 
foods they eat and what foods they uh, um, stay away from, then you'll find it's the list that's outlined in Leviticus chapter 11. So, in a word, they, they do their best to, to follow the law of Moses. And yet, the church teaches that the law has been done away with in Christ, it's been relaxed in Jesus, and that Paul taught that the works of the law are no longer relevant for us because we're no longer under the law. I have discovered this is the, quite the unfortunate view for Christians, I'm sorry, for, uh, unfortunate view for, uh, view for Jews who are coming into the faith of Messiah because they go to their average pastor and they ask, what do I do with the law now that I'm a Christian? And the, your average pastor tells them, well, you don't need to worry about that anymore. It's been done away with. It's been set aside. So that's why I think this particular study of Galatians is going to be pertinent for today's churches and for today's Messianic communities. And it's going to be a little different, to be sure, from your standard Lutheran view of Paul, your standard Reformation view of Paul. And part of it centers on our view of circumcision. Again, we're going to study circumcision tonight because I believe it bears... Um, importance for us when we start diving into the book of Galatians to understand that the background driving Paul's writings is that Paul realized that the first century Jewish people of his day, those who were outside of Messiah, still functioned with the deficient way of thinking about circumcision. In other words, for them, circumcision equaled Jewish identity. And because their salvation was guaranteed by circumcision or guaranteed by their Jewish identity, again, we know that's wrong, but that's just the way they felt. Because that's the way they thought, then Paul has to dismantle that in his writings and then present the proper way of understanding both circumcision, its application, as well as faith in Messiah. Are you guys following along with me so far? So, let's pick up the discussion in the middle of page 13, we already talked about Tim Haig's um, uh, commentary on this particular section, where Tim Haig is introducing this um, discussion on why did God ask Abraham to circumcise himself exactly where he did? What about the Genesis narrative becomes pertinent to Paul as he went back and developed his own theology for both the books of Galatians and Romans? What about the narrative in Genesis and the way it lays out, the way it reads, the, 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 the narrative flow? What was so pertinent about why circumcision was, was, um, <laughs> was done to Abraham in that particular place on his body? In other words, I asked the, the, the question, why didn't God just ask Abraham to circumcise his ear, you know, nick off a piece of the ear, or cut off just the very tip of his nose, or, you know, take... take Take just a few centimeters off the tip of his, you know, pinky finger or something like that. Why did he have to go there? You know, why the ouch factor is, is how I humorously put it in my commentary. So, Tim Haig has um, uh, put forth a suggestion that I find uh, strong scriptural support for. Um, to be sure, when I read through other standard Christian commentaries, I don't find this particular view being articulated the way that uh, Tim Hank has done so, and so I have to give him uh, kudos for putting together such a, um, uh, what I think is a well-thought-out commentary to this particular section in the book of um, Genesis. And so I borrowed those notes and put them in my Galatians commentary. So right in the middle of page 13, let me just pick up where I stopped last week. 
uh, with the paragraph starting out, the sentence that starts out, in reference to circumcision. If you're in the live study tonight, you'll see it right in the middle of the page. Let me read there. In reference to the circumcision of in the uh, apostolic scriptures, Hegg makes these pertinent remarks, quote, What brings Paul to use Abraham in his exposition here is the central promise of the covenant that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul's argument is that this promise was given to Abraham before circumcision and that therefore Abraham might rightly be considered the father of all who participate in the same faith, whether circumcised or not. In fact, the promise that Abraham would be a father of nations is applied more precisely by the apostle in the phrase, father of all who believe. Let's keep reading, and I'll just read down through, probably down to the end of the notes, and then I will um, stop and go back and just explain what we've read. Let's keep reading. Paul's argument, while given to prove another point, still confirms what I have previously maintained about circumcision. This is Tim Haig writing. The ritual did not bring something new to the covenant, but rather reinforced righteousness on the basis of faith, the very hallmark of the covenant from the beginning. Circumcision required Abraham to continue in the faith that he had brought with him from Ur and to direct this faith toward the God who had promised to bring him a son by divine intervention. It is on this basis that Paul, in Galatians 4.23, refers to Ishmael as according to the flesh, and Isaac as through promise. Let me pause and get a drink of water here. <clears throat> Let's keep reading. Page 15, top of page 15. Paul has shown that a primary function of the law was to point to Christ in Galatians 3.24, and it stands therefore to reason that circumcision has fulfilled its function. For Christ, the promised seed, has come. Israel, worshipping the sign rather than the seed to which it pointed, had attributed to circumcision what only God's Son could accomplish. This Paul plainly asserts in a statement that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love, end quote. And that's the end of Tim Haig's quote. Uh, let me go ahead and continue to read down through the rest of my own notes here. As you can see, if you're in the class, there's only two and a half paragraphs left, so I'll just read those, and then I'll go back and just explain what we've read, and that will um, kind of put a bow on this particular week's um, study topic. Let's keep reading my own commentary. Now that we understand, as Paul understood, that circumcision was to be an eternal marker of covenant participation, pointing to the one who would be born not by human effort, but by God's supernatural power, and of course, we're referring from Abraham's perspective first to, to Isaac, who's about to be born, but ultimately, when we talk about the son who will be born not by human effort, it points to Yeshua, right? Then, as I keep reading, we can begin to appreciate the importance this topic played in the formulation of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Surely, the Galatian Jews and Gentiles were entertaining notions of implementing community circumcision based on their misunderstanding of the social benefits it provided as a people group of God. However, Given the views we've just examined, we in the 21st century Christian communities have no reason now to continue misunderstanding 
and misapplying this important covenantal sign as well. As we begin to unlock the meanings behind Paul's technical words and phrases in this Messianic commentary to Galatians, and then begin to carefully apply their true meanings, it is my aim that the believing Jewish and Gentile body of Christ might be knitted one to another even more tightly as we both find our true and lasting identity rooted in the person and work of Yeshua HaMashiach. In order to deepen our appreciation for Paul's important first century work, we will turn systematically to the concepts works of the law, covenantal nomism, and under the law. To be sure, familiarity with the first century sociological Jewish aspects of these terms will pave the way towards a better, more accurate understanding and application of the book of Galatians. And finally, I write, this first term, works of the law, will whet our appetite for digging into the background of Paul's first century Judaisms. End quote. Okay, that's the end of section two, Ouch Factor, Why the Male Reproductive Organ. Next week, we are poised to begin um, the next topic, which would be section three. And if you've downloaded the full Galatians commentary, you'll know uh, let's see, what is that one called? Number three, Proselyte Conversion, Works of the Law, Part 1, Understanding the Background. Okay, let's go back now in this last half an hour of the live study and kind of unpack what we read in the commentary. Essentially, if you read through the Galatians, um, if you read through the book of Galatians with the assumption that Paul is combating a first century notion um that the Jewish people thought that if they kept the law perfectly, that they would get into heaven, and that Paul has to come along and explain to them that, number one, no one can keep the law perfectly, and therefore no one is under the law anymore, because the only way to attain salvation is not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And if you interpret works of the law as meritorious deeds done with the hopes of gaining God's attention for the purpose of salvation, in other words, if you think that works of the law describes a simplistic ladder to heaven, then you're going to come away with the assumption that Paul is telling you that circumcision has no value in Christ. And particularly if you read through the uh, Galatians 5, which uh, we, read in our, um, we read in our liturgy. Let me go back and pull it up again. Look, I, Paul, tell you, this is Galatians 5 too. Look, I, Paul, tell you this. Uh, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It sounds like Paul is saying in, in Galatians 5, verse 2, to the Jews, that if you keep circumcising your baby boys, and to the Gentiles, if you become, if you accept circumcision and go under the law, become a Jew, or any such notion, that Christ and circumcision are, are at odds with one another. And in that caricature that I'm describing by the Christian church in that view of Galatians, anyone would pick uh, faith in Christ, correct? Everyone reading through Galatians with that view of works of law would would honestly and naturally uh, go for uh, uh, faith in Christ. And everyone would say, well, gee, it's apparent that circumcision is worthless and works of law are useless and the law really has been done away with. And I'm trying to um, challenge us in that regard, because that that's not a proper view. That's not a proper use of the Torah. And so, um, what I'm trying to explain in my commentary here 
uh, as we go back into uh, the notes that I just read over, is that if you read through the book of Genesis and begin to get a view of circumcision from the way Moses described it and the way that Paul would have read it after he encountered the risen Messiah on the road to Damascus, you're going to find that as you corroborate your view of circumcision from Genesis with the rest of the New Testament, um, for instance, say, the book of Acts leading into the book of Galatians, read it that way, then you're going to find that works of the law cannot be describing uh, merit theology. It cannot be describing a legalism that believed that circumcisions, uh, um, believed that uh, keeping the law saved you. Instead, what you're going to find is that um, Paul read through the book of Galatians, I'm sorry, Paul read through the book of Genesis, and he pulled that information into his discussion in the book of Galatians. And when he did so, he singled out Abraham as his example. And that, excuse me, that's why we singled Abraham out for our discussion as well. And important for us, or pertinent for us, germane for our study here tonight, is that circumcision becomes a sign of an existing faith that Abraham already had. Abraham didn't think that circumcision saved him. Therefore, we can immediately begin to see that the deficiency that the Judaisms of Paul's day functioned with was wrong-headed from the beginning. It was the cart before the horse. You've heard that saying before. It was legalism. They were believing in a work, but the work wasn't necessarily doing the Torah so much was so much as it was um, the legalism of, of, of an identity. The Jewish people didn't think they were working their way into heaven by keeping the Torah. That view is um, put forth or postulated, that thesis is um, presented by the church. And about for the last 2,000 years or so, that is basically the way the Christian church uh, interprets the book of Galatians and Paul's writings. They believe that the Jewish people of Paul's day believed in a meritorious system of keeping the Torah perfectly in order to gain God's favor. But as we begin to study Paul a bit more accurately, then we find that that's not really the deficiency that they had. Instead, their legalism, which was unique to them, their legalism centered on status as Jews, the social status that um, Jewish identity afforded them. And Torah observance comes along on the heels of their existing status as Jews, not in order to save them, but in order, in their view, in the Jewish people's view of the first century, in order to maintain their position in the covenant. In other words, to keep them out of idolatry, to keep them out of hot water, to keep them from being kicked out of the people group known as Israel. Because if you remember, as you read through your Bibles, God promised over and over if you read through the Torah, God promised Israel over and over that if you keep my covenants, I will be faithful to you. I will bring you into the land. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will, um, you know, I'll increase the cattle. I will increase the seed in the field, etc., etc. And if you spurn my covenant, if you disobey me repeatedly, um, if your heart grows cold and you walk away from the covenant and you repeatedly violate my laws, then I will eventually kick, I'll, I'll start withholding the blessings first, and then eventually I'll kick you out of the land. And essentially I'll kick you out of the people group of, of Israel. I'll, I'll scatter you to the four corners and you'll lose your identity 
as a people group. And that's essentially what happened to Israel, right? In the, in the uh, what, 5th and 6th century, um, 500 uh, BCE, God's, God allowed Israel to be scooped up by the Babylonians. He allowed uh, Judah be, to be scooped up by the Babylonians. He allowed Israel to be uh, carried off by Nebuchadnezzar. And they, you know, as far as Israel is concerned, uh, because they were, the houses were split by then Judah and Israel, Israel lost her identity. She, she lost her identity as a, as a people group. She lost her hold on the covenant. So the Jewish people coming out of the Babylonian exile back into the land after the 70 years of exile in Jeremiah's day and etc., they begin to realize as they took a look at a hard lesson, a hard, a hard look at their penchant lust for idolatry, they began to realize, you know what? We better start taking the covenant seriously. And if we want to remain as a people group on the earth, and we want to remain blessed. We better start getting our uh, view of covenant keeping correct. And unfortunately, they went headlong into Jewish identity and created this policy that as long as we're Jews, we're in, and as long as we're a people group known as Israel, we'll be blessed. And uh, eventually that will lead to the eternal blessings. And therefore, we need to just steer away from idolatry. Now, I give them... Uh, you know, I, I applaud their effort to, to run away from idolatry because that's what got them in hot water in the first place. That's what gets them kicked out of the land. Break my Torah, I'll kick you out of the land. That's what God says, right? And that's exactly what God did. So I applaud their effort to, to um, focus on keeping Torah for the purpose of steering away from idolatry because that's what the Torah is. It is a sanctification tool. But what they fail to understand is that genuine faith must motivate your genuine obedience. So what we're trying to describe today is motive. Why were they keeping Torah in the first century? And when we read through Paul's writings, we can't keep uh, um, assuming that the motive for keeping Torah was to be saved. We've got to jettison that way. That's kind of old Paul. Let's go with a, a different perspective on Paul and begin to realize that the motive for keeping Torah was not to be saved, but rather to remain saved. Now, Stop and remind yourselves as 21st century Torah students, keeping Torah for the purpose of remaining saved is also wrong, right? It's wrong-headed. It's incorrect. It's bad theology. And Paul's going to say no, no, no to that as well. So that's where we're picking up our discussion on circumcision. It's because circumcision in Paul's day was being used as the identity that got you into the covenant. And for Jewish people, they were born with this. And, and from their perspective, from the Jewish people's perspective, because they were born with this identity, because they were born as the circumcised people, because they were born as Jews, which from their perspective, from their limited mistaken perspective, because they were born saved, they determined or they identified, they defined that as grace. Isn't that odd, right? They thought that this was grace. They thought, wow, what did we do to have to earn our Jewish identity? We didn't have to do anything. We were born with it. You know, it, it's been perpetuated from Jewish parents to children to parents to children, etc., etc., etc. And so because of that mistaken view of Jewish identity and Jewish status, they thought, wow, it's a gracious thing that God chose us. By grace, God chose us as Jews. And then they thought to themselves, well, what do we do with the hapless Gentiles who were not born with this gracious status symbol? 
aha, I know what we'll do. They thought to themselves, we'll create a policy. We'll create a ceremony where we can bada bing, bada boom, turn a Gentile into a Jew. And then so doing, they receive the promises and the inheritance of Torah, just like we have. And in so doing, they receive salvation. Isn't that novel? So that's kind of the situation that um, Paul found himself in once his eyes were opened. He looked at the Torah, and he looked at the Jewish communities around him, and he thought to himself, Oy vey, wow, how did we miss it? How did we, how did we, how did we get this thing turned around so, so badly? And unfortunately, the Christian church today, who doesn't go back and study the rabbinic writings like the Midrash and the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they don't study them with the intent of, of giving the Jewish people at least the benefit of the doubt of keeping Torah for the sake of loyalty to the covenant. They just, the, the, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate perspective that your average seminarian just assumes that the Jewish people of the first century were stone-cold legalists, and that anyone who's devoted to Torah was doing so out of a motive that was legalistically driven. In other words, um, the, the caricature or the, what do we say, the stereotype of the first century religious Jew, the Pharisee, so to say, is a pejorative one in standard Christian circles. No, 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 I'm not a Pharisee. I would never try to keep the law perfectly. I would never try to uh, be devoted to the law. I'm, I'm under the faith of Christ. You know, this is kind of the, you can hear the, um, the, the sarcasm in my voice as I'm trying to recreate the voice of, of, a, of your average Christian of today. And, you know, my heart goes out to Christians who are studying um, through the book of Galatians with this view because, unfortunately, it leaves them in a position where they have no choice but to uh, conclude, incorrectly in, in my opinion, but to conclude that Torah obedience and Torah importance is is kind of shelved. It's kind of put off to the side. The covenant spelled out with Moshe has been superseded by the covenant with Jesus. Uh, the new covenant um, supersedes the old covenant. Um, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Uh, the works of law has been defeated by faith in Christ, etc., etc. And so um, I think it was helpful to go back through the book of Genesis and start with circumcision all over again and begin to see if we can figure out how would Paul have interacted with the book of Galatians, I'm sorry, with the book of Genesis and um, uh, the life of Abraham, particularly when God said, I want you to circumcise yourself in the, uh, the organ of procreation. Why there? Why there? What does it do for the gospel? Why does it point towards the gospel? How does it point towards the gospel? And so that's what I've been attempting to explain in this particular section. So let me just say it again, uh, because I have a tendency to ramble on and on, but let me say it for you succinctly. The Genesis narrative, if you read it from, say, starting in chapter 12 and just go through systematically, read chapter 12 and go all the way to about to, say, chapter 18, just as a unit right there, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. What you'll find if we kind of use um, Christian concepts and throw them back into the text for a moment, you'll find that Abraham's faith in chapter 12 is kind of building his faith and his obedience to leave his house, leave his family, leave his, his, his um, native land and, and travel towards a land unknown. 
and to begin to trust in God and to accept God to bring about that which God has promised, namely the promise of multiplicity, that God was going to um, expand his family and bless him and give him children. Abraham's getting older. Sarah's getting older. Their bodies aren't going to really function the way that um, younger people function. In other words, it's going to be, become more and more difficult to bear children. And yet, Abraham still believes God for the unbelievable. And when we get to chapter 15, then Abraham has this divine encounter with the Davar Adonai, the word of the Lord. And it is in that um, is in that interaction with the word of the Lord where his faith, Abraham's faith, is cast specifically on the object of the word of the Lord in regards to this promise of progeny, the promise of the offspring. It's in that um, in that setting that Moses describes the faith of Abraham as being credited by God as righteousness. Abraham becomes a tzaddik, is what I called it in my writings. He becomes a righteous man. And so that's Genesis 15.6. If we keep reading through the Genesis narrative, this is essentially what Tim Haig explained to us, and that's why I'm paraphrasing it for us and, and um, summarizing it for us in these last few minutes of the study. If you keep reading through the Genesis narrative as you're working your way from Genesis 15 and towards, you get to 16, and Abraham thinks, well, I have faith in God. If, if Or if we could just use Christianese, we would say, I'm saved. Well, I'm saved, Abraham would say to himself, but I don't have any kids yet. I mean, I really believe God, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm barren. What am I going to do? What to do? What to do? Or as we say in Korean, otake, otake, otakashi. Otaka, what, what should I do? What should I do? Otakaji is what we would say in Korean. What should I do? What Abraham decides to do is that he he and Sarah come up with a Hagar plan in Genesis 16. And Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and sure enough, he produces a son. But it turns out that Ishmael is not the son of promise. He's not the covenant son that God envisioned. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 17, God has to sit Abraham down kind of give him a potch, as Pastor Mark of the Harvest would say, sit him down and give him a painful object lesson and say, Abraham, stop, listen to me. I told you I'm going to bless you. I told you I'm going to um, multiply your seed, but what you're doing is the wrong thing. You're taking matters into your own hands. You're walking in the flesh, and I can't have that. And so what God does is he has Abraham become circumcised in Genesis 17, right? See the progression? Genesis 15, Genesis 16, Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God commands Abraham to become circumcised. And in doing so, Abraham takes on a sign of his existing faith. And also, Abraham marks himself on his body in the spot with, in, in the place of the very body part that he used to try and secure the promises under his own power. Are you seeing that? In other words, Abraham, even though he was saved in Genesis 15, he he fell into the flesh in Genesis 16 by trying to bring the promises into reality under his own power, by human ingenuity. He thought, this is how it's going to work out, and he slept with Hagar, which in and of itself wasn't wrong because Hagar was his legal handmaiden, right? Uh, she she belonged to him, so I, I don't think it was an adulterous act per se. Um, but nevertheless, 
by sleeping with Hagar instead of trusting God to bring the promise through Sarah, like it should have been, Abraham did not solve the problem. Instead, as Tim Hague described it, Abraham introduced a complication. And so Genesis 16 represents the works of the flesh or the works of the law. In other words, by the works of the flesh, by the works of the law, by status of the flesh, the promise was hopefully going to come to pass. And yet, we know it didn't come to pass. Let me get a drink of water here. Hmm. And so, um, Abraham hoped that Ishmael would be the son of the covenant, that he would be the son of promise. But God, visiting Abraham in Genesis 17, has him get circumcised, cut away the flesh from the organ of procreation, so that Abraham can demonstrate by his obedience, by his actions, that it is not by human ingenuity, it's not by human effort, that the promises of God are brought to effect, that they're brought into reality. Instead, it is only by faith, it is only by divine fiat, that the promises of God can be enacted in our lives. And this is the picture, this is the paradigm, or as Mark would describe it, Pastor Mark, would describe it. This is the antecedent theology that Paul used in the book of Galatians as he read through the book of Genesis. The antecedent theology behind the Genesis narrative and Abraham's actions with the Hagar principle and then Genesis 17 with uh, circumcision and then Genesis 18 where God uh, revisits him and Sarah in the tent at the Oaks of Mamre, Parashat um, Va'era, and um, Abraham's healing from uh, becoming circumcised, and, it, and God shows up. You know, the three men show up, and one of them is God. The two of them are angels, and God promises him that a year later that uh, Isaac would be born, and Sarah laughs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You guys all know the story. That all represents for Paul the paradigm, the antecedent theology behind Paul's teaching, his didactic teaching in Je in Galatians, that it's not by the works of the law, i.e flesh, i.e. human effort, that we are saved or that the promises that God uh, extends to us come to be in a person's life. Instead, it is by faith, in essence, by trusting in God, in essence, by cutting away the flesh, in other words, becoming circumcised in the heart, that we uh, allow the, uh, faith to be enacted in our lives. In other words, that's why Paul would say that if you become circumcised, Christ profits you nothing in Galatians 5, verse 2. As I look at that verse again, it's not that Paul is pitting the importance of circumcision against faith in Christ. What, Paul, what we have to do is we have to decode Paul. We have to realize that Paul is speaking using social language of his day. And in that day, circumcision didn't merely mean obedience to um, cutting away of the physical uh, male sex organ. That's not primarily what Paul's getting at in Galatians 5.2 when he says, if you become circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. What Paul is really saying is that if you trust, if you, if you, Mr. Jew, cast your faith on your Jewish identity, your social status as a Jew, and your Torah obedience that comes along with that social status, that, remember how I described it last week as two sides of one coin. If you, Mr. Jew, 
are hoping and believing and trusting in your Jewish identity to save you, in other words, that's circumcision, if you're trusting in that, then I, Paul, tell you that trust in Christ will profit you nothing because they are two different forks in the road. Circumcision slash Jewish identity is one fork, and trust and faith in Christ is the other fork. And you can't go both directions at the same time. That's what Paul's trying to say to his Jewish audience. And then he does an about-face and looks at his Gentile audience, and he basically says the same thing. I tell, I, this is me speaking as if I'm Paul. I, Paul, tell you, Mr. Gentile, trusting in your conversion to Judaism for salvation, trusting in your um, newly acquired social status as a Jew, as a circumcised member of Israel, I, Paul, tell you, Mr. Gentile proselyte wannabe, if you're trusting in that, then Christ will profit you nothing. Are you seeing it now? That's the better way to understand Paul's writings. And what's really, really nice, as I draw my study tonight to a close, what's really nice about this view of Paul, this hermeneutic principle that I'm describing, where we take works of the law and don't define it as mere obedience to the law, Instead, define it as that, that social barrier that separated Jew from Gentile based on Jewish identity, based on membership into Israel, based on the, um, uh, the membership package, the short list that gets you in and keeps you in, etc. If we, if we define works of the law in those terms instead of the way the church describes it as simplistic merit theology— what it ends up doing is it ends up exonerating Torah observance on the other side. Do you guys see that? In the church's view, works of the law being defined as merit theology, mere obedience to the Torah, leads to their conclusion that under the law must also mean under obedience to the law. And since Paul says we are not under the law, the church concludes that we are not under obedience to the Torah. And that is an incorrect conclusion in my opinion. Instead, if we start with the definition of works of the law as this Jewish identity policy, then we understand that under the law doesn't describe under obligation to Torah obedience. Instead, under the law, as we're going to find out a few weeks later, um, under the law describes a, a um, position of under condemnation uh, to the law, uh, under the condemnation that the law spells out for unrepentant sinners. In other words, it's under the penalty of the law. It has nothing really to do with trying to do, keep the Torah so much as it has to do with the failure to keep Torah and the penalty that God describes in the Torah for those whose hearts are cold, for those who, because of their lack of faith, their um, lack of remorse, their lack of repentance, their lack of interest in God— Essentially, God says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to kick you out of the group. I'm going to set you away from my people, and I'm not going to bless you. That's the, that's the under the law. We'll find out about that a little later. But that's all I really wanted to say about that for now. I hope that we have kind of better wrapped our mind around this concept of circumcision and why it was done on the male sex organ. And the answer to that question is why there... And it's because Abraham used that particular body part to try and bring about the promises. And for Paul, that is 
tantamount to trying to be saved by being a Jew. In other words, um, Abraham trying to bring about the promises of God by sleeping with Hagar for Paul becomes a teaching principle that he can apply as um, teaching that it's not by Jewish identity that one is saved. And he can he can apply that to his first century communities because that's the deficiency that they had. Not that they were thinking that keeping the Torah safe. And that's that's really not the best way to look at that. So I hope that makes sense. All right, with that, for those of you who are in the live study, stay with me for the next 15 minutes, um, or really about 10 minutes, because the, the, the um, Wiz IQ is going to shut down at, at uh, 15 after. And so I'll, I'll entertain um, Q&A through the chat uh, mechanism here in, in the WizIQ. You can type a question or, or a comment in the chat room, and I'll address it for you. But for those of you who are listening to this commentary after the fact by uh, via podcast or iTunes, etc., um, I'm going to dismiss in prayer, and I invite you out every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time right here, um, as we used to say, same bat time, same bat channel. Join us every Tuesday evening for a live study on the book of Galatians. Let's close in prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, our King Lord, uh, we bless you tonight and we say thank you for, for opening the text up to us. Thank you for challenging us afresh. Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, we thank you that you have reminded us again of the words of the Master Yeshua and that you are bringing his truths to our mind afresh. We thank you that we are being renewed in our mind as we let the word wash through us, as we let the words challenge us, and as we seek to, to apply it as Ezra did, we, we study in order to do, in order to teach. Lord, be with us as a community, be with us as family members, be with us as Torah students as we seek to press in to be pleasing to you, as we serve an audience of one. Yeshua, we exalt you. We, we say we are enthralled with you, and we thank you that it is by your power, as the book of Hebrews says, by the power of an indestructible life, that the promises are brought to reality in our lives. For indeed, as the Torah says, uh, in Jesus, all the promises are yes and amen. And so, Yeshua, we seek to glorify you and to honor you in all these things. Bless us as we go forth tonight. Uh, keep us safe throughout the week and bring us back together as a community next week. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the blessings. B'shem Yeshu Meshachinu V'emru. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 
because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.